invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the blessings of this Sabbath. And as we open your word now, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would be present to help us to understand spiritual things um, in a deeper way, to apply them in our lives, in the life of our church. We thank you for your presence with us and your promise to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this has been one of the more vibrant worship services I've been in in uh, quite a while. And uh, that's the way it should be on Sabbath, right? Have you identified why it is, what makes the difference? Um, I guess I could ask this. It's a dangerous question. Don't answer it out loud. Anybody ever been in a dead church? Why are you laughing? Um, God's plan is for something better, right? If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting at verse 5. We can see this from a long time ago that it's been God's plan for his people to have something remarkably better than the rest of the world. Deuteronomy 4, starting at verse 5. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What was God saying? He was telling his people that his plan was that the world would look on and say, Wow, these people have something better than the rest of us. That's how it's supposed to be. Far too often that's not the case, right? The world looks on and says, Boy, I don't know, you'd have to really convince me that what they got is good at all. So um, when we're in a vibrant place like this, it's pretty exciting, a place to be. This idea of something better, uh, we were told an inspiration a long time ago, the book Education, page 296, here's what it says. Something better is the watchword of education, the law of all true living. What do you think about that? The law of all true living. Everybody wants something better, right? something better than what I had before. And notice, whatever Christ asks us to renounce, he offers in its stead something better. Isn't that good news? Whatever it is as a Christian, you recognize we're being asked to give up. God offers something better in its place. I think about some of the ways that Seventh-day Adventists, in particular, have been given an advantage, a blessing, light, about something better. I think about uh, an issue that's been talked about a lot in the United States recently, and that's our health and the health plan and all of the controversy that's surrounded. How are we going to take care of sick people in this nation? But God says, I want for you something better. Something better. In Testimonies, Volume 6, page 223, read these words. The Lord years ago gave me special light in regard to the establishment of a health institution where the sick could be treated on altogether different lines from those followed in any other institution in the world. It's another example of something better, right? God's plan is something better. Seventh-day Adventists have an edge. Well, we've been given an edge. Whether or not we take the edge is another question. 
but we've been given an edge about health. And we were warned a long time ago that if we didn't run with it, what would happen? We'd go to others, and they would run with it. It's time for us to catch up with where we should be. There's a number of areas we could talk about. That's not the, the purpose of my, my presentation this morning, but I was thinking about all the different ways that God has given us something better. I've, the testimony the brother shared about the Sabbath, that's something better, isn't it? Um, that's a 24-hour period where there is blessing in that time. I mean, this is something that's hard for us to explain. Have you thought about this? Well, you're driving down the highway, you look in the car next to you, the guy passing you or whatever, on, on their way to do something else. They don't know. This is Sabbath. This is holy time. There's something in this that we can't explain, and you become part of that blessing when you keep the Sabbath holy. That's something better. Um, mentioned education. God has something better in, in store for his people in education. We're told that if we don't grasp that, if we don't come to connect with true education, that we're going to miss out. We're going to miss out for eternity. The gospel, an understanding of salvation, that God's plan, yes, it's good news that we can be forgiven. We can have cleansing for the past. Isn't that, I mean, listen, if it wasn't for that, uh, why would any of us be here, right? It'd be depressing. But God offers something more right? A change. We don't have to continue to be enslaved to Satan. Those habits don't have to keep a grip on us. We can actually change. That's something better. Much of the world doesn't understand, even much of the Christian world. They don't, many of them don't know more than forgiveness. And as great as that is, God has something more called change. You don't have to keep making those same mistakes over and over again. And this goes all the way through so many aspects of life. And what I want to touch on now is God's plan for something better in worship. And I, you know, just sitting here in the worship service, um, it was so refreshing this morning. So I want to return to the question, do you know why it is? What makes the difference between when it's vibrant and when it's not vibrant? This, this question has been pursued even by church leaders in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Many of our churches are dead on Sabbath morning. I remember hearing HMS Richards, who has long since died, but even years ago, he put it this way. He said, some churches are so cold that you can skate down the aisle. And maybe more truth than humor in that statement. The way you responded when I asked you if you've ever been in a dead church, it seems like we all have. But have you ever tried to analyze what's the difference? Because trust me, that's where the devil wants to take us. He wants to take us to a dead experience on Sabbath morning because it's the worst, well, it's, it's the best possible advertisement if you're advertising against the truth, is that it would just be boring and dead. So what is it that makes that difference? In the, in the question, in, in trying to uh, resolve this, in trying to deal with the problem of, death in churches on Sabbath morning. There's been an interesting debate that has risen in the church, and I'm sure you've heard about it here in Hawaii too. It's been everywhere. It's in Europe. It's all around the world. And it's become a battle over traditional worship versus contemporary worship. 
And it's been something that has caused all kinds of friction in congregations. Now, I want to suggest to you that the reason for that friction, the reason for the battle, is because the devil has managed to lure us into a trap that there's a, there's a name for it. It's called a Morton's Fork. Do you know what a Morton's Fork is? Okay. Uh, look it up on the internet sometime, but I'll tell you, a Morton's Fork is a thing in argumentation that is used sometimes to win an argument, but it, it's also called a false dilemma. It's kind of deceptive. A Morton's Fork is when somebody presents you with two alternatives, two choices, either or, and they're both wrong, but they don't tell you that. They present two choices as if they're the only two choices. The devil does this to us all the time. And people use it to win arguments. And so the unsuspecting never ask the question, is there another alternative? Is there another answer that's not on the table? There are examples, uh, well, I'll, I'll use one from, from politics that we've, most of us here, heard from our own president some years ago, George W. Bush at 9-11, right after 9-11. This was a Morton's Fork. He said to the entire world, you are either with us or you are with the terrorists. Remember that? That's a Morton's Fork. It's two, it, apparently the only two choices, when in reality there are some other options out there. Those weren't the only two available choices. By the way, it's called a Morton's Fork for an interesting reason. There was uh, a man who lived a long time ago, 1487, Lord John Morton, Chancellor of England. And so the name is, for, is Morton's Fork in honor <laughs> or dishonor of him because here was, here was what he did to the people of England. <coughs> it was his job to increase taxation. So he said, all right, if you're rich, it means you need to pay more taxes. And if you're poor, you must be hiding your money and so we need to get more taxes from you. So it was a, a no-win, your alternatives were both bad, that's a Morton's Fork. And so the devil has done the same thing about worship. Because what's happened is a lot of things have come into the church to try to liven up worship. And some of us smell a rat. It's like, wait a minute, that, there's something not right about that. And so there have been people who've raised the alarm, look out for some of these things where really we're just bringing the world in to try to excite worship. But as people watch this, the other alternative they see is the one where you put ice skates on because it's so cold, right? And it's the one that some people trump and they say, but that is true traditional worship. And what I want to propose to you today, that this is the devil's Morton's Fork on Seventh-day Adventists, that actually if we went back and looked at early Adventism, we would discover that what, what many people think today is traditional Adventist worship is not at all traditional Adventist worship. That in the early days of Adventism, the worship experience was alive, and it was vibrant, and there's a reason. So I keep returning to the question, what's the reason? What makes the difference? Because I think from, you know, I, it's the first time I've ever been here, but just observations, I think you've got it. Maybe, I don't know if you've analyzed the reason yet, but the devil wants to take this away from you and if, if, he, if he succeeds, you will degenerate into cold, it's something Mrs. White called cold formalism. 
cold formalism. It's where people, you know, they, we think we're doing it all right by the book, but it's just plain dead. And this has been a real dilemma because there are people who recognize a dead church, a dead service when they're in it on Sabbath morning, and, and it's not interesting, and they don't want to be there. But if the only alternative they're offered is something else that is not right, then we've really created a, a, a problem for people. So what is this thing? In Hebrews chapter 10, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, the ingredient is identified. What's interesting to me is it's even in the context of the last days, which tells us this would become a controverted point. This would become a special uh, matter of attack from the enemy to try and destroy our worship services. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 24. By the way, this, has been, this is a proof text that pastors have used to try to convince people to get back to church <laughs> who drop out. Anybody here ever drop out of church for a time? You don't have to raise your hand, but maybe somebody used this verse when they visited. I was taught this is the perfect verse to use to help coerce someone back to church. <laughs> okay, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and verse 25. Starting at verse 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That's the verse. That's the, the hammer that people have used to try to get the dropouts back to church. Not forsaking the assemblies of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now this is interesting because it's telling us as we see the day approaching, as we approach the end and Jesus' return, we are supposed to do this so much the more. Do you recognize what it is? It's the title of the message, Exhorting One Another. What does that mean? What does it mean to exhort one another? Sure, that's a, someone says of courage, encourage, uplift. Really, it has to do with, you know, exhorting comes in different ways. Sometimes to exhort, if, well, let's, let's let the Bible tell us. Verse 24, it's in another way there. Provoke. Provoke unto love and what? To good works. Listen, to be an exhorter means that you're willing to do the thing that needs to be done to help your neighbor along the way. Sometimes, when, now I, I think encouragement's a good choice of word, but sometimes we misunderstand that. Sometimes what my neighbor needs is, um, well, just what's coming to mind, a swift kick in the pants. Right? I mean, if you care about someone, sometimes you need to kind of, sort of, in, in a loving way, kind of grab them and say, hey, listen, buddy, you are headed for disaster, and I care enough about you. If I didn't care about you, I wouldn't have said a word. I would have just stood back, but you need to change direction. So that's, that can qualify. Exhorting is a broader term that means I'm going to step in and do what needs to be done to help my brother, my sister, my neighbor on the way. Now, here's, here's the, the crux of the matter. You can't exhort and be a spectator at the same time. And I believe this is the ingredient that I, I think you're onto it here. 
But Hebrews 10.25 says we have to do this more and more as we see the day approaching. And so I want to toss out there the idea that, that there's room for even more of getting out of the spectator seat and becoming a provoker, an exhorter to good works. Now this was happening this morning, for example, in the testimony time. Many churches don't do that. They don't even have that kind of interaction. We're supposed to do this more and more. A lot of things about the way we do church is set up to push you into the spectator mode. Whether you might think about it. I mean, look at how we are here. Here I am up here, and you're sitting in pews. And a lot of times, even growing up in the church, we're taught that the, the right thing to do, the right way to be in church is to be quiet, that reverence equals quietness. And that's not true according to the Bible. In fact, the early church, the early Christian movement, was um, there was so much participation and so much involvement that the Apostle Paul had to say, hey, hey, we got to have some order here. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14 and starting at verse 26, notice the level of participation in the worship time. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? Let all things be done unto edifying. Now, was he saying, hey, everybody shouldn't do all that stuff? Because really, he's, he's asking a question. How is it every one of you? This, this paints a picture where all, virtually every person in the congregation is doing something in the worship time. Do you see that? And on the surface, it might look like, hey, that wasn't good. They shouldn't all be involved. But notice what he says. We keep reading, verse 27. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three. So he said there should be some limitations, and that by course, one at a time. What does that tell you? That everything everybody's doing, they're doing at the same time. So he's saying, let's, let's bring some order into this. Verse 28, if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church. So he's saying if, if someone were speaking in an unknown tongue, you've got to have an interpretation. If there's no interpretation, then it doesn't belong there. And let him speak to himself and to God. Verse 29, let the prophets speak. What does that mean? Well, when you understand that a prophet, in the Bible, the term prophet is used more broadly to represent the person who's speaking for God. So it's fair to say, in a sense, he's talking here about people preaching. Now notice this. Let the prophets speak two or three. Wow, two or three sermons on Sabbath. How does that sound? The kids are saying, oh, no, and I'm hungry already. It's almost 12 two or three. No, look, we keep reading. Verse 30, if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace, for ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. Verse 32, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. What is he really saying here? He's saying, you know, okay, everyone has something to do, but do it one at a time, do it in order. The idea here is that the goal, the primary goal for worship should be participation. And that the more people that are able to participate in worship, the better. So I'll just cut to the chase. I asked you now several times, what is it that makes the difference? What is the ingredient here that made things more vibrant today 
than some other church that you might have been in recently. I believe it's because more of you were involved in the worship service than typical. And the, the, the closer we move toward everyone participating in the worship experience in some way, then the more we're going to see vibrant worship as God would have it on Sabbath morning. Now, this idea, you know, right now the world is understanding this idea in an interesting way. On June 10, 2009, so almost a year ago, the announcement was made by the BBC the press in England that the millionth English word had now been declared. The millionth English word. Some people debate the credibility of the organization who's making this declaration, but whatever. It's called the Global Language Monitor is the name of the group. They only recognize words if um, there are 20,000 plus usages they can find, 25,000 plus usages they can find in writing, as I understand it, before they'll even recognize the word. And this was the millionth English word. This word is very unusual in the English language because it's the first time ever that an English word has a number in it. I don't, I don't mean spelled out, but the number is in the word. I wonder if anybody knows the word. It has to do with the internet. The millionth recognized English word and the first word ever to have a number in it. Here it is, Web 2.0. Has anybody heard of Web 2.0? Oh good, that means you're not a bunch of computer geeks. So that's good. Web 2.0 is a concept that is now taking the internet by storm and has been for quite some time. Everybody's probably heard of Facebook, right? Facebook is Web 2.0. And it represents a shift in the way the internet is being used now around the world. And what it defines is this, that previously the web was a collection of web sites that were static. They're put up there Somebody's trying to get information out. But Web 2.0 is a new level in internet technology. And Web 2.0 means that there is now inter interaction and everyone in the web usage marketplace can participate in what's happening. And so you have websites now that used to be like, well, back to enoch.org, okay, our website. But now the new trend is that websites are being actually put together in an interactive way where everyone who comes and visits that website can add something. And so like on Facebook, you have people making comments and commenting the comments and all this. It's interaction. And it, the more people that get involved, the better. There's so much so that this idea, Web 2.0, was coined as a word to describe what's happening. And I believe that God is calling for church 2.0 now, where the goal is participation, and the more people participate, the better. Now, this scares people, and quite frankly, it scares pastors. It has scared me in the past. Why? <clears throat> because a pastor wants to come to church with everything sewn up. You've got your notes, everything's all planned, you know how it's going to go. Why? Because what if I veer from the notes? What if I don't know what to say? 
what if I look bad? I mean, let's just be frank about it, right? And so the dilemma is that sometimes you come to church and things don't go exactly as planned. And one of the tragedies in church has been that when it doesn't go as planned, we force it to stay as planned, even though the Holy Spirit is trying to do something different. Now, keep in mind, I'm not talking about disorder in church because the Apostle Paul said you've got to have order. But let me try to give you some illustrations of how this plays out on Sabbath morning. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's appropriate. Sure. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And that's why I believe this church is more alive, because they hold fast to he who is faithful. And when we hold fast to him who is faithful, we will act. We will participate. And so, you know, it's because of him who is faithful. You know, all these programs, all this, this and that, you know, and him, All right. That was very well said. Thank you very much. And an example of the opportunity to be able to participate in church. I remember, you know, and uh, we're not going to have time today, but Wednesday night I would like to do this because I'm going to be here Wednesday evening for prayer meeting. Um, I started to explore ways, because there, it is appropriate to open our Bible and have a presentation on Sabbath. But I want to read to you something. This is, this is um, greatly misunderstood, even among uh, conservative, shall I say, Seventh-day Adventists. Listen to this. Listen to the language of this statement found in Volume 7, page 19. There are times when it is fitting for our ministers to give on the Sabbath in our churches short discourses. What does that mean? There are times when it is fitting. Now, you don't have to you know, express your thoughts on this, but in the kind of culture I grew up in, if you don't have a sermon, you pretty much don't have church. But what I'm reading here is that the sermon actually is the exception rather than the rule. Now, if that's new thought to you, just chew on that for a while. Let me read it again. There are times when it is fitting for our ministers to give on the Sabbath in our churches short discourses. So They've got to be short, and yeah, sometimes we can do that. Isn't that interesting? Full of the life and love of Christ, but the church members are not to expect a sermon every Sabbath. Now, I gather that you don't, um, but, but perhaps there is a sermon every Sabbath, and I want to give you some ideas to get more participation even during a sermon time. Um, as we started to experiment with this uh, some years back, I was working with a group of elders, and I said, well, we all need to get involved here, and what I'd like you to do is to develop or devise Bible studies that we can have interaction on Sabbath morning. So they said, well, that's fine, but then you work with us and you help us because we don't know how to do that. And quite frankly, I didn't really know how to do it either because I was trained to do a sermon and preach a sermon. How do we get more participation? So we tried to, to approach it this way, that when you prepare a message, 
it's good to it's good to prepare. It's good to have an idea of what it is and ask God, what do you think we ought to be focusing on this Sabbath morning? And put your notes down, but ask God to help you to think of questions that are pertinent to the material that you can ask people that will hopefully engage them and make them start to think and think about answers. And then be prepared to go where the questions take you, even if it's out of your notes, which is somewhat uncomfortable for all of us, if you've done any presenting. So I remember the Sabbath that an elder and I were working together on this. We were in front. I had work, met with him that week. We developed the notes. We had some questions. And there was a lady that kept asking a question that was not in the notes. And my friend I was working with, the elder, he didn't want to go there. Why? Because he didn't know the answer. It wasn't in our notes. And um, I couldn't understand how he felt, but I was standing by his side, and he was leading. We were working this together as we were trying to get more involvement, even in the sermon time. And so um, I started to notice as, as he was talking, and I was looking at his notes, that actually her question was addressed further down the notes. But you would have to skip some things to get there, right? So I started tapping on his notes because the lady was not going to give up. She was relentless. And she was asking the question, and I was tapping, tapping. And well, finally, we, we tried to address this question. Um, actually, I thought that we'd done pretty well. I thought he did a good job, and I thought that we addressed the question. But we also had participation, and there were people in the audience raising their hands. And the only rule that we had is if you're going to make a point, we ask you to have something from inspiration to back up your point. Fair enough? Something from the Bible to back it up. Well, after the service, there, uh, w there was another lady there, too, who had asked a question, and I felt like, you know, we answered it. She came to me, and she said the, the worst thing that you ever want to hear as a pastor. She, just, she looked me right in the eyes, and she said, you know what? When you and the elder answer that question, I was confused. And that's the last thing that I want to hear. I mean, you know, you devote your life to communicating, and this person basically told me I failed. And so I was, you know, my heart sank. But then she said this, but when Alan, out in the congregation, when he said what he said, then I understood it. And there, all of a sudden, it clicked. And so I said to her, I said, well, you need to tell Alan. You shouldn't be telling me that. You should go find Alan and tell him. And she was a visitor, but she found Alan. So you know who was talking to me about five minutes later? Who came to me? Alan came to me. And Alan said, you won't believe it. This lady just came up to me and said that based on what I said, some point I was making, that she, she was confused, and now she understood. And as Alan was looking at me, you know, kind of beaming, I realized how important it was, what happened that day. The lady would have gone home confused if it had just been left up to me and the elder. She had her question answered, right? But something else very important happened. It happened to Alan. What was it? He needed to be there that day. Because if Alan hadn't been there that day and hadn't piped up and said what he did, then the lady's question would not have been answered. Are you with me? And I started to recognize this is why it's so important. Another illustration. I remember one Sabbath. I don't know if this has ever happened here or in the church where you've been in. I've seen it happen several times. It's very uncomfortable when it happens. And usually what we do is we just try to make the best of the moment and just move on and get out of that situation. Somebody says something really uncomfortable, like in the prayer request time, and 
we just all, you know, you just kind of tighten up. And what happened was there was a young couple that was attending, and he was a psychologist, so, you know, leave it to him to be open and honest about everything. But anyway, he wanted the microphone, and, and he was sitting next to his wife. They had been attending this, they weren't Adventists, they had been attending there for maybe a month or two. And he said, last night, this is Sabbath morning, so it's Friday night, last night, my wife and I just had the worst fight of our marriage. And it was just one of those moments where, you know, I, I looked at him and I thought, you know, you're busted. I mean, he just did this in front of the whole congregation, and there was no expression. She was holding a poker face. And he said, I, we need prayer. And then, you know, normally what we did in a situation like that is, okay, thank you, brother, and just move on, right? <laughs> um, and you add that to the morning prayer. But right then we were trying to learn how to engage more people in worship. And so we did something a little bit different. We called them to the front. You know, I thought there's, there's nothing to lose now, right? He already spilled the beans. He's already in trouble with his wife, so how much worse can it get? So I just said, could you both come to the front, please? And she reluctantly got up with him, and they came to the front. And I just asked the folks there that day, how many of you have ever had the worst fight of your marriage? How many of you want to see this couple work this out? And you want to see God have a victory in the lives of this couple? I mean, this would be a tragedy if this all comes apart. God wants to help them through it. How many of you would be willing to come up and surround them in prayer right now, and let's just stop what we're going to do next, and we're just going to have a season of prayer over this couple. And, man, I'll never forget that, that moment, that Sabbath morning. That people almost jumped out of the pew to come up and surround this couple. And there was just a, a sea of members of the church just surrounding them. And I just took the microphone and I just put it in. And they just started praying. And they went around the circle. And when they were done, I realized... There's nothing that I could add as the pastor to that prayer. They said it all. And so the prayer time was over. I could share other experiences like that. One of the things we did that, that was helpful is we started to mix. You know, you had great music here today. Wasn't the music beautiful? And during the singing, we would pause and we would ask for testimonies or prayer requests. And then we might stop and have prayer right then. There might be a real need, and so we'd have prayer, and then we'd go back to the next song. And so it started to change our Sabbath worship. It didn't necessarily fit exactly with the bulletin, but we still kept things in an orderly fashion. And the thing that started to take place is as more and more people got involved and lives were getting changed, I remember hearing from you know, who is it that it's, we say it's the hardest for change? Young people? Usually the older people. It's the hardest to make change. But I can tell you that in that church, as we started to do this, do you know who came to me? Sometimes, I'm not exaggerating, sometimes with tears in their eyes. And so we want to thank you for the changes that are happening in this church. It was the older church members the older church members. I remember a fellow who was, he was another fellow who he was not an Adventist, eventually was baptized, but he had been coming to church. And he had been gone for a Sabbath, and he came back and he said, I just hate missing a Sabbath because I never know what's going to happen here. <laughs> and that's the beauty of that. So 
My message to you today is really a message of encouragement that you won't lose this ingredient and that you'll ask God to help you to take it to the next level. Because the more participation you have, you realize you're going to be the only game in town. Churches don't normally operate this way. Most churches come in, sit down, and, and they, they let the people in charge do it. And as more and more of you participate and become engaged on Sabbath morning, it takes it to a new level. I was thinking about what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you'll turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is the chapter that talks about spiritual gifts, but we're going to drop down to verse 14. After Paul describes the different spiritual gifts that God gives to members of the church, verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? It's still part of the body. If the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now God hath set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. If they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and the members in particular. So God has placed you here for a reason. God has a special part for you to play in the body. And as you make yourself willing and available to God to be used, then more incredible things happen in the church. The church becomes a real force for change in the community. So I pray that God will help us to be willing to be members of his body and do what he bids us to do. We have a hymn here that we're going to close with, 358. Far and near the fields are teeming, 358.